0: Good morning. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. Uh, it's good to be back with you. I think this is our uh, my third time visiting, second time coming and filling in for Dave. And uh, I can just tell you that it, it's a really sweet place to visit, uh, being here. When we walk in, we sense the Spirit at work. We always feel ministered to by you. And so we, we thank you for the opportunity to come up and, and be with you this morning. So Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20. This morning, we're going to be uh, finding John, one of the 12 apostles of Jesus. We find him in exile on the island of Patmos, uh, and he's there because he was preaching the gospel of Jesus. And when we find John, we find him in obviously difficult circumstances, being in exile. And yet, despite that, we find him uh, in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So despite his circumstances, we find John worshiping and praying. So let's pick up in verse 9. Says this, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a, a voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus and to Smyrna His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. And it remains forever. So let's go before him and let's ask his help in understanding and applying it this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a love, what a cost. Lord, because of your self-sacrifice, your willingness to stoop down and ransom us, we stand forgiven at the cross. So Lord, this morning we pray that as we turn our attention away from, in a sense, what you have done, Lord, we turn to your word where we see the curtain sort of pulled back and we see what you are doing presently in the heavenly realm, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would be captivated by your glory. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So a question I'd like to ask you this morning, and it is rhetorical just to remove all doubt. Uh question I'd ask you this morning as we start is what do you think the church needs most today? As you evaluate the church, whether your local church or the church in America or the church across the globe, what is it you think that the church needs most today? And I would imagine the answers are probably as numerous as there are people, but if we went around and asked that question, we might get some different answers, like a more robust emphasis on missions. Maybe a greater commitment to evangelism. Maybe you'd say that the church needs to be more compassionate or be more unified. Maybe you'd say that what we need most is more backbone, courage to speak up in an increasingly secular culture. And I believe those are good things, and I think they're probably needed in great measure. But I think what I would argue and what we're going to see this morning is that those things actually flow out of something far more fundamental and foundational to us so when we look at John as I said earlier he's on the island of Patmos and he's facing adverse circumstances of his own and he tells us in verse 10 that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day and while in this state John hears a voice like a trumpet tell him to get to to get ready to write down everything that he's about to see and then send it out to these seven churches And these churches all had several things in common. For one, they were all located along this mail route. So the order in which Jesus lists these churches is how a a letter would have progressed as it was sent from Patmos. But they were also all experiencing persecution and temptation to abandon their faith. And this is why John calls himself a brother and a partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom and in patient endurance in Christ. John wants them to know that he is with them that they are enduring together. And in the face of adverse circumstances, Jesus does not come to John and to these churches with a list of things to do first, nor does he come and tell them that he is going to remove their suffering. Jesus comes, and in order to give comfort and strength to his church, he gives them the only thing that can do that, and it is a vision of himself. Church, this is what you and I need most, fundamentally. See, suffering is a part of our experience. Trials and temptations are a part of our human experience. And what we need most is not any different than what John and these churches needed. We need to see and behold Jesus as he really is. And so what does Jesus show them and us about himself? Three things we're going to look at this morning. First is his person how he describes himself and who he is. Next, we're going to look at his work, what we see him doing. And third, we're going to listen to his words, what he says to us. And so first, let's start with his person. Let's look at how Jesus is described in this vision. There's obviously a lot of rich symbolism here that we don't have time to fully unpack. But the first thing I want us to see is that how he describes himself, what he calls himself. It's one like a son of man in verse 13. That phrase might be familiar to you if you've ever read through the Gospels. The Son of Man is Jesus' favorite designation of himself. He uses the phrase Son of Man to identify himself some 80 times in the Gospels. And this title may seem like a strange one, but it actually doesn't originate here in the New Testament. The phrase Son of Man actually comes back from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7.13, Daniel describes a vision that the Lord gave him like John, and he says this, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. In his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. When Jesus uses this self-designation, Son of Man, we might think that he's highlighting the fact that he's human, right? We might think that he's highlighting his humanity. But actually, when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he's actually highlighting his transcendent majesty, his divinity, his godness. This title points to the fact that Jesus is the promised king and that he rules eternally over that kingdom that will not be shaken in Daniel chapter 7. And then look at this list of descriptives that's given to Jesus. He's described as having hair that is white like wool, like snow, eyes like a flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze, voice like the roar of many waters with a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth and a face shining like the sun at full strength. There's a lot there in that description, but when you take all of those things together, this vision that Jesus gives of himself, it paints a picture of one who is a victorious conqueror, one who is infinitely wise, infinitely powerful, and infinitely glorious. This is a stunning, awe-inspiring vision of Jesus. But yet what is perhaps most surprising is that at the center of John's vision— What we find is not a disembodied idea, but a resurrected, glorified person. One who has defeated sin and death. And this is not the way we tend to think or talk about him, particularly in the South. When we talk about Jesus in the South, we typically reduce him down to nothing more than a set of values or principles. At best, we may see Jesus as our role model, the guy that comes to say no to everything and tells us how to live our best life. Al Mohler, the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, he said this. He was uh, sitting down, he was reading a newspaper one morning, and he came across the advice column, and a desperate mother had written in to the columnist because her daughter had become an atheist, despite being raised in a family that she said had strong Christian values. And stop there. That's a relatable problem. Maybe some of you are in that boat. It's a painful place to be. But Moeller points out that in the way that she framed the question, she said that this child had been raised in a family with strong Christian values. And, of course, the advice columnist went on to give advice and say, you know, you need to be respectful of that child's life choices and accept them as they are and be affirming. After all, it's not your responsibility to impose your values on someone else. Al Mohler, of course, goes in a completely different direction. He says that in that phrase, in the question, strong Christian values, we begin to see part of the problem that might have led to that child being there. He says this, Christian values are great, but they are not Christ. He says, hell will be filled with many who avidly committed to Christian values, but Christian values cannot save anyone, and they never will. Salvation comes only by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, every other religion in the world doesn't need their deity to be alive. All they need is their teaching. They need some good phrases that would go great in a fortune cookie that tells them how to live life. But apart from a resurrected, reigning, glorious Jesus, there is no Christianity If Jesus is alive, we have nothing to offer that's any better than any other religion in the world. Our religion centers on a person, and he is far more than life advice. He's far more than Christian values. He is far more than a role model. He is the one promised in Daniel 10 that wouldn't merely come and offer salvation, but one who would embody that salvation and accomplish it for his people. Christian values are great, but they cannot save Friends, if we want to see those that we love receive salvation, then we cannot simply point them to a Christian worldview and to Christian rules. We must point them to Christ. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus alone can save, and he alone can offer the comfort and strength that we need to endure. The second thing Jesus shows us about himself is his work. So we've looked at his person, who he is, and I want to see the work that he's doing John begins his description of Jesus in verse 13 by telling us that the Son of Man is standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands. And in verse 20, just to remove the confusion, the lampstands, he tells us, represent the seven churches. And like everything in Revelation, the number seven is symbolic. Seven represents completeness, fullness, or perfection. And so when John tells us that Jesus is standing in the midst of these seven churches... What he's really telling us is that Jesus stands in the midst of every church, in all places, at all times. So who are the congregations, or why are the congregations represented by lampstands then? What's the purpose in that symbolism? Because lampstands uphold that which gives light. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Jesus said, you are the light of the world you the church are the light of the world a city located on a hill cannot be hidden people do not light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand and it gives light to all the house in the same way let your light shine before people so that you can see so that they can see your good works and give honor to your father in heaven local churches uphold and support Christians because Christians are the light of the world or lights to the world and so what do we see Jesus doing among these lampstands? Why does he walk among the congregations? This actually draws back to imagery from the Old Testament of the high priest. If you think about a lamp, a good kerosene lamp, I'm a big fan of electricity. We don't have a lot of kerosene lamps laying around our house, but you've probably seen them at Cracker Barrel or something like that. right? The thing about a kerosene lamp is that you can stand there and look at a kerosene lamp and see that it has kerosene in it. It may have a wick, but you can stand there and look at it all day And it's not going to actually produce a flame, right? It has to be ignited. Something actually has to light the lamp. And if you were to just leave that lamp burning, the wick is going to burn down or the kerosene is going to run out, right? A a good kerosene lamp has to be tended to. It has to be preserved. And so Jesus, when it says that he's walking among the lampstands, it's not stated explicitly, but the role of the high priest in the Old Testament, one of his functions was to keep the lamps burning in the tabernacle at all times. The lamps were never supposed to go out on his watch. And so Jesus, we see, is keeping the lamps tended. The thing about lamps, right, they don't produce their own light. We said already it must be derived from a source. You have to have a match or a lighter of some kind. Jesus tells his church that we are lights to the world, but he actually says that he is the light of the world. We have a derived light. We possess nothing in and of ourselves apart from him. And so Jesus walks among these lampstands to keep their flames burning brightly in the local church. And so the Bible has no concept of a Lone Ranger Christian who has no need for the local church. Here in the heavenly realm, as God sort of peels back the curtain for us and we see what Jesus is doing presently in the heavenly places, the object of Jesus' attention and his affection is centered on local churches. It's where his people receive the light of his word and then radiate that light out just as we talked about earlier in our time of prayer Got a, uh, a neighbor back in Clanton. I love cutting grass. I love edging. And, I, you know, it's just it's a real hobby for me, which is weird, I know. But um, so the way I just mow as much grass as possible is I've taken on mowing my parents' yard. And so they live right there in town. And so I take a lot of pride in making sure that the curbs are edged and the lines are straight. And I am somewhat obsess over this yard. And I start to feel pretty good about it as I get done. The problem is that they have this neighbor next door. And he's retired. And so all he does is take care of his grass. He doesn't swoop by once a week. He's out there every day. And I'm convinced that like if a leaf falls out of a tree, he's out there with tweezers disposing of this leaf, right? Like it's fertilized and manicured and edged and bagged. I mean like it's it's crazy. Then I start to not feel so good about the job I've done, right? But the reason that he's able to do this is because he's retired. Like his yard, He loves taking care of it. It is the object of his attention and his affection. And so I don't want to be lost on you, if that helps provide somewhat of a picture, that Jesus tends to the local churches in that kind of way, that he is mindful of what's going on in every local church and that he takes great care in tending to it. He doesn't neglect it. He doesn't take weeks off. He tends to the local church and to the believers In them, So church, even at this very moment, Jesus is ruling over and ministering to his local church in in order to ensure that the light of the gospel continues to go forth through his people. And so we can find great comfort and strength in both who he is and in the work he's done because that Jesus at this very moment is tending to the flame of your faith, ensuring that it doesn't go out. What a comfort. And then lastly, let's look at his words, what Jesus says. John has perhaps the only appropriate response to seeing the glory of the person and work of Jesus. He falls down in terror. This is an apostle who is advanced in years, mature in his faith, long-schooled in godliness, and when he sees this glorious resurrected Jesus, he falls apart. This is a common occurrence when you look throughout the Bible. A couple of instances come to mind, Daniel 10 and Isaiah 6. These men see God and just absolutely fall flat of their face. Why does this happen? Why is this the common pattern that we see when people behold the glory of God? Charles Spurgeon explains it like this. He says, "...the most spiritual and sanctified minds, when they fully perceive the majesty and the holiness of God..." are so greatly conscious of the great disproportion between themselves and the Lord that they are humbled and filled with holy awe and even dread and alarm. In other words, when Jesus' glory and holiness are perceived, so too is our sin. When we see him for who he is, when we see how holy he is, we can't help but see how far short we fall of that holiness. We become aware of this great chasm between him and us, and this is what John experiences in the presence of Jesus. And I don't know what you might expect Jesus to come and say to John, but in verses 17 and 18, Jesus comes and draws near to John, and he lays his right hand on him, and we hear him speak for the first time. And what does Jesus say to this terrified man? Fear not. He tells him not to be afraid because he is the first and the last, the living one. He says, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. John feels the reality of his sin, and Jesus comes and offers him an assurance that he came and was resurrected to forgive sinners like John. And Because he did, he is now Lord of the living and the dead. In this moment, John experiences the true paradox of Christianity, that the one who is supremely terrifying is also supremely comforting. Friends, fear of the Lord and comfort from the Lord go hand in hand. Why do we so often feel so little comfort and strength in the Christian life? I would speculate that it's because the Jesus we worship is far too small. We not only diminish Jesus in the South by reducing him to a set of principles, there's another common way that we sort of whittle Jesus down to a size that we like. One of my favorite pastors to listen to is a guy named Ray Ortland up in Nashville. And he said in a sermon one time, almost prophetically, that the greatest threat to the church in America is not the government or a secular society. It is the bobblehead Jesus Jr. that we created and worship. We've taken this glorious reigning king and we have whittled him down to someone who waits at our beck and call. Someone who's more concerned with our comfort than our holiness. And someone who, strangely enough, never disagrees with us. Friend, no such version of Jesus exists. The Bible knows no such Jesus. That Jesus is an idol that our hearts create. And so if the Jesus you worship is not big enough to terrify you, then I can promise you he will also not be big enough to comfort you. And this is not a foreign concept to us. If I had to ask you who you were most afraid of growing up, you would probably say your dad. And, I, and if I ask you who made you feel the safest, you would probably also say your dad. At least I hope you can say that. I know that's not true of everybody. But I knew growing up, and I have a really good father, but I knew growing up that my dad could absolutely snap me like a twig for back-talking my mom, all right? But I also knew that same dad, with all his strength and wisdom, was also going to protect me at all costs. This idea of someone being terrifying and safe, go hand in hand. And so Jesus, and the fear of him, does not stand in opposition to our peace. It actually is the beginning of true peace. When this glorious Jesus speaks gospel comforts to us, we can take him at his word because he alone can say to us, your sins are forgiven, fear not. And so just a question and an exhortation as we close. First, I want to ask you this, has your heart ever laid eyes on Jesus in such a way that it revealed your sin to you? Have you ever seen him in such a way that you were simultaneously terrified and comforted? Have you seen him in such a way that you became painfully aware of your sinfulness? Perhaps you've spent your whole life thinking that you and Jesus had something sort of worked out and that he was a a set of good principles to live by. You've seen him as your buddy. If that is you, my prayer is that you would see Jesus as he truly is, as he presents himself that your sin would become clear and that your response to that would not be despair. It wouldn't be the response of Adam and Eve to go and sow fig leaves, but that we would respond by throwing ourselves at Jesus for mercy because he is the one who died and was resurrected. And second, to those of you in Christ, I would exhort you to look to Jesus and to ask him for an expanded view. In his book, Prince Caspian, C.S. Lewis describes a scene... Where sweet Lucy returns to Narnia to see Aslan. And when she saw him again, she said, Aslan, you're bigger. And he says, That is because you are older, little one. And she said, Not because you are. And he said, I'm not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. That, friends, is the Christian life. With every passing day, as we grow, as the Lord deepens our roots, we will actually see Jesus to be more glorious larger more terrifying and more comforting than we did before he is the holy one in our midst the one who is mighty to save the one who will never leave us nor forsake us in this may we find strength and comfort to endure as we all look to christ let's pray lord jesus we thank you for who you are Lord, will you forgive us for the idolatrous, puny version of you that we have created in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would take the blinders off, that by your word and the power of your spirit, we would see you as you are, the one worthy of fear, the one who alone can comfort, the one who alone can forgive. Lord, as we turn our attention to your table, Lord, you invite us here and tell us that this is a a foretaste of the banquet feast that awaits all who have trusted in you. Lord, I pray that as we taste the bread and drink the juice, that our hearts would be stirred, that we would be comforted, and Lord, that we would love you more today than we did yesterday and the day before. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.